There is no begging for shagging when your Maserati is your wagon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that line. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and yeah, he, and he, he says no. The Great Dive Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando. Listen, I was watching this movie last week, Last Breath. Have you heard Last Breath? Uh, no. No. Dude, you got to watch this thing on Netflix. Dude, why didn't, you, about these... why didn't you text me? We could have we was... watched it virtually together. You know, we should have uh, We should have done that. Yeah. That's the new... I can't believe they haven't added that feature to Netflix now that you, in this world that we're in. That's going to be the next technology, group watching movies. Let's not uh, encourage this behavior. All right. Well, uh, this isn't very humane or human. Let's let's get back to being human beings again. Well, hey, it's about these commercial divers. You you would really dig it. Yeah, they're out in the North Sea on this research vessel, which is basically they built this entire ship basically around this saturation station. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, with the ability to drop multiple teams, you know, over. You know, multiple days, super highly technical boat that they're on, and the well, shit hits the fan. It's pretty amazing, man. Well, yeah, I think that's a daily occurrence in the North Sea kind of thing, it seems. But for our listeners that don't, you know, I know we have a lot of new-to-diving listeners, so that they don't know what saturation diving is. We should probably give them a little cap in that so they understand. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, not a bad idea, yeah. Basically, the the idea is that your body becomes fully saturated with an inert gas at a given depth, and once it reaches that point, it won't it won't take any more inert gas into the tissues, right? And then, so no matter how much further you stay past that, it's the same decompression. So they send them down and keep them down, and they let them do the entire job, and then they bring them up once, and they keep them compressed in bells and chambers. Yeah, so these guys are basically living in a habitat on this boat that's pressurized to yeah. 100 meters, they, 330 feet, right? Right, and the deck and decompression they, they chamber. They put them into the should, bell, they yeah. drop the bell down, they go down to do work, Transfer. they bring them back up, and you know they decompress over a long period of time in this habitat. It's called a deck decompression chamber, a DDC, a DDC. Yeah, the, tech, the deck decompression chamber is basically your living quarters, and it's a little... I mean, some of the nice ones are like Sea uh, Lab, but up on a deck of a research vessel or an oil rig or a diving, a diving. Yeah, that, and that's the way. Uh, that's the way this one was. was yeah. So they, you know, the beginning of the movie, they're going around and showing these guys. You know, they're all excited, getting ready for the trip, and they got 
couple of the experienced guys and the new guy on the boat and so uh it's all about they're dropping down onto this oil rig in the in the north sea they need to go down and repair this pipe and the boat is in this middle of this crazy ass storm and it loses the main computer that controls the whole navigation system luckily they and got the, backups and, and the backup and the luckily they have a the backup, backup. <laughs> the backup to the backup <laughs> they, they all go down just like you know like some big bubbly <laughs> cook carrying a pot of tomatoes you know tripped over the power cord or something you know like everything goes down you know what comes to my mind when when you just said that you know losing the backups to the backups and is uh that scene in the movie airplane where the uh the one guy trips over the cord and knocks out all the air traffic controller right, stuff right. yeah 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 <laughs> and he's like whoopsie <laughs> you know uh, right well that's like how everything goes down and the crazy thing is it's like everybody's shit in their pants because they're like we have to fly this thing manually yeah and like nobody even really understands how to use the controls. One person can't do it because you've got basically four different jet thrusters all over this thing. It's to to pretty complex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're trying as best they can to to manipulate this thing, but in the process, it rips these guys off the rig, and one guy's umbilical was wrapped around it. So as they're getting pulled off, you know, the everything snaps. It's it... wild. They've got they've got real footage as well as then they like recreated a bunch of footage oh, for cool. a dramatic effect. Uh, cool. So it's a really exciting show. Does that but he's down there? Yeah. Three you know three hundred feet. Three hundred somethings. Three hundred. Yeah. There's some type of measurement of three hundred in there. Yeah. Three hundred feet. Three hundred meters. Yeah, I would yeah, imagine it's... it's pretty. Yeah. For saturation, yeah, it was, it was, yeah it's a hundred. It was a hundred meters. Oh, it was a hundred meters. Three, okay, three hundred and thirty feet, right? In the absolute pitch black, because like in those, not only is his hot water line coming yeah. to him, his gas the is coming to him, his electrical for his for his lighting, so he can see like everything's mm-hmm. in there. He loses it all. They've got bailout tanks on them. Yeah, but which is like five minutes of of gas. Really, like where exactly. He's, where he's at, you know. The bailout tanks I used to, were seventy twos. They they were just seventy twos, and, and sometimes they were smaller. They were a fifty aluminum fifty. They were nothing. They were like okay, just you know, get out of here, kind of thing. But at three hundred and thirty feet, you know, unless you've got a giganto bailout, which you wouldn't wouldn't have they just don't do that anyway does that give you a nice warm fuzzy feeling too knowing like oh if the computers go out everything goes to hell i because i just want you to think about flying i want you to think about basically anything going on a carnival cruise and if if that ever comes back um where those ships are computerized you know they are extremely computerized it, it right, makes yeah. me go, hmm, if the computers go down, that's the world we're, we're leaving for our children and their children is. Yeah, computer. Well, we just had dependent. two ships. Yeah. We just had two freighters crash in Detroit River uh, yesterday. Did you, hear, did you hear that? Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Computerized. Like the computer went down. down. Yeah, down by uh, Grosseal. <laughs> we had a – are they running on Windows? I, I'm, I'm they got curious. They're on Windows 95. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably more stable than Windows 10. But it's, uh, I don't know. You see, 
that's building in an inherent weakness where we no longer know how to do anything. It's just, oh, just hit some keys on a keyboard. If electricity, if there's an EMP, we're done. Well, the whole world's going to, like, if there's an EMP, there's, it's going to be crazy. You know, well, these sudden, guys were able to get the boat yeah. kind of back a little bit. Yeah. Not well. Yeah. And not, not consistent. They, they needed the computers to be up and running again. Yeah, I don't know. How would you feel down there? Because obviously they lost comms. So you're down oh, there working. All of a sudden, nothing. And you're getting no comms or anything. You're, you're just down there 330 feet in a bell. Well, so they're, yeah, so sat, they're sat it out. Pants, yeah, you're sat it out. You can't even go to the surface. Oh, hell no. Yeah. Surface is immediate death. Yes. Yeah. Yikes. So th- they say that he's got like five minutes of gas, basically, in that open circuit bailout but i mean a 72 and 330 feet of water or even if like, he looked like he had you know maybe twin 50s on or, yeah. or something even even 100 cubic feet of gas yeah you yeah. maybe have five ten minutes he uh so they 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 start showing basically the timeline of them on the boat doing the oh shits yeah uh you know five minutes 10 minutes 20 minutes 30 minutes, you know, and... Uh, Did they go to 35 minutes? <laughs> 33. 33. <laughs> 17 seconds. I don't want to give away the movie, but it's, it's. I mean, edge of your seat. Like, I was on the edge of my seat watching that thing, and uh, my wife was walking around in the background just having a anxiety attack just <laughs> in passing watching it. It was, it was really good. It reminds me... Uh, of that book that that we were sent by uh, by old Dominic Miller, I think. You remember Dominic Miller sent us yes, that book, Dominic, Salvamar? Yes, yeah, Dominic sent us a book uh, a couple of months ago, and he's emailed me a few times yes, ab- about it. We've and, messaged. Um, we've just been too busy, but we're finally getting to Salvamar, the tale of salvage and deep diving, Dominic's book. Which was, a, it was... Uh, it was a really good book. If you are a fan of, of commercial diving at all, but even diving, the lifestyle, that romantic uh, painting or portrait of a, of a commercial diver in the commercial diving heyday, this is a book you're going to love. But the, uh, there's a scene in it that's somewhat reminiscent of this, this movie in the sense of there the uh it's commercial diving in the north sea it's actually uh not only the north sea like this the main character dives all over you know yeah all, uh, over, the all over the world he was in the you know of course started in london he's british so that's an uh, that's a plus he's and, british uh, and, how much more and cool he's, can and he he's get? got himself a nice little moustache <laughs> he does he's uh, apparently he's like a british Burt Reynolds. So, if you can imagine that, <laughs> a, can you imagine uh, Smokey in the Bandit with a with a British Burt Reynolds? I say there, Smokey. <laughs> no, he's Smokey. I say no, he's Bandit. I say there. Let's get this show on the road, there, chaps. Anyway, there is a scene in the book that uh, that's a little reminiscent of this, where the um, the bell that transports the divers down to the bottom. Uh, has some issues. It uh, the, the the cable starts to fray, or they have to unhook the the cable. Anyway, 
the, uh, the rough conditions up on the surface translate to the bell being slammed into the bottom uh, of the seabed. And the diver was just getting ready. You know, I don't want to ruin the whole mo- book here either, but the diver, diver was just getting ready to exit the bell, which you exit out the bottom of the bell. So you open, the, you open your hatch, pressures maintained to overcome the, the bottom pressure, and you exit out the bottom hatch. But fortunately, he had, he had uh, not opened the bottom <laughs> hatch to exit at that time. He was only minutes away, but it slammed him into the bottom. Would have been uh, probably a pretty certain death, if not, you know, for him, as well as his tender or diver too. Usually it's a two-person two, two in the, uh, the bell. One tends the, the umbilical. The other one dives, then they switch out after a few hours. But a uh, pretty yeah. pretty good uh, book if you are um, if you're into diving. Period. Yeah, it's exciting. It's a it's an exciting book. Definitely, it it covers both <clears throat> the stories of amazing commercial dive tales of of deep work. Deep saturation work, shallow saturation work, shipwreck hunting, but also has a lot of topside. What you talked about that romanticized lifestyle of the of the mustached, good looking, macho commercial diver guy and his money in his pocket and whiskey in his glass <laughs> and oh, sports yeah. car, uh, sports car uh, at the wheel, you know. So yeah, hey everybody, welcome back to the great commercial diving podcast, everybody. You're here with Mustached Brando. <laughs> I, now, I looked at my, speaking of Mustached Brando, I looked at my open water, my basic open water card. So I got that while I was in the service, but there's a regulation in it, you know, in the Air Force called Air Force Regulation 35-10, which dictates your how you wear your mustache, your hair, how long it can get, you know, et cetera. So where I was, there were no uniforms, and I, could, I didn't have any Air Force Reg 35-10, meaning I was supposed to grow my hair and grow my mustache to blend in with the community, the surroundings. So while I was taking my, my diving lessons out there, I uh, grew my mustache down to that, uh, that Burt Reynolds looking uh, down past, you know, down to your, your what is that? What, is it? what kind of mustache is that? It, a handlebar. It, no, it wasn't a handlebar. That's what the handlebar has a little, like, curly cue. This comes down past your lips and down t- towards your chin. Like Burt Reynolds. Like, a, you know, you remember how they used to have the... The seventies mustaches. It's like a it's like a horseshoe. Yes. But not not like a full on right. horseshoe. It's right. a little bit be- between a you had like the uh wasn't quite a porn star mustache. I don't know. Because it was uh like a like a major mustache. Yeah, it wasn't a f- wasn't a Hulk Hogan mustache. No, like, not I look quite at the Hulk Hogan, Hogan mustache. Hogan. Or it was closer to, uh, I don't know, when you look at, um, what's his name? Uh, who is this, th- that guy? 
Ron Jeremy. Ron, that's the yeah. por- that's that's what I said. That's the There's porn no, star. Yeah. So mine wasn't like his. Mine went a little bit further past. Anyway. Anyway. Like a like a really clean version of a trucker. <laughs> there you go. I didn't even think of it like that, but there, I think you nailed it. I wasn't in the Air Force, so. Well, Air Force didn't let me have that mustache. They gave now the me... Rock and Roll Handbook. Yeah. In the Rock and Roll Handbook, subsection sixty-six six, you know, talked more about having sweet sideburns than you know mustache regulations. So to get into the rock and roll force, how was boot camp for that? Were you like, <laughs> did your ears uh, it, go bad? Uh, what happened? <laughs> it was mostly uh, Pabst Blue Ribbon and Jameson. Well, <laughs> was, uh, was, I was going to say, was like, we, uh, share six weeks, we share that. <laughs> six, six weeks of Jameson and Pabst. Yeah. Interesting. Um, but You know, right off, uh, right off the get-go, he describes his Uncle Brian talking about uh, his look. So in, in Salvamar, Dominic describes this guy, this, uh, this commercial guy, which is his uncle. Yeah. He says, Brian, with his overlong ebony hair in check by a saliva-lined face mask just above his forehead, <laughs> yeah. looking out at the sea time. and couldn't disagree. His ink-black coloring was out of step with his siblings. It was often blamed on a dormant Portuguese branch of the family. Portuguese. Blame it on the Portuguese. Yeah, yeah. His father had often made the accusatory observation that Brian had the touch of tar brush about him. Another sage observation his father made of the second and youngest son was on the subject of his career. You know your problem, son, don't you? You're smarter than your bosses, but you don't want to be like them. Yeah, I mean, uh, this, this, which is uh, how uh, it's how we get to scuba diving, right? Right. Well, I mean, this was this was a characteristic of people that went into commercial diving. I remember when I went in there, we were all along the same lines in the in the class. We were, you know, didn't want to do a regular job. We there were a lot of us ex-military, former military, I should say. Um, in the school there were there was one guy who was uh he had never dived a second in his life and decided to go into commercial diving and then you know that's a little bit like brian's story here but like here uh in the book he talks about the type of person that he was and the type of pe- you know uh people drawn to the the commercial diving world where he, he says offbeat people and places always appealed to brian normal was boring and ordinary was stifling stealing your boat back from spanish customs was the kind of normal he liked and if you were to trace the story of how he came to be gliding into gibraltar harbor with a caddish grin held across his incredulous and somewhat frightened face you would have to go back to the start of the main chapter in the story of his life. The diving one. Back to the dock in the east end of London in 1970, where he first found his calling. He wasn't going to be an artist, or a nightclub impresario, or a powerboat racer. He was going to become a commercial diver and help shape an offshore industry in its infancy. And that's, that's kind of how the book starts talking about 
you know, what give you a little uh, characterization of who he is and what kind of person is drawn to commercial diving. You know, off does not want the, the well-beaten path, wants something different, an adventure. And uh, that's, that is commercial diving to me. That's what drew me into it. So, so and, and you should probably know that we'll give this little bit away in the book too, is Brian, in his first job, never dove a second in his life. He had never dived before, before suiting up a, a Mark V-type helmet and yeah, dive, we uh, dive basically saw an kit. advertisement on the side of a van and was like, well, shit, I'm going to go give this a go and nearly well, killed himself. <laughs> I was going to say his uncle his uncle told, told him about But, yeah, it's found, he found the advertisement. And uh, it, it's kind of funny. Even that little story is pretty good. We could, we could talk about that because that, that's pretty good right here where he says, uh, you know, he went in and lied about his experience, said he's dived before. And he was always a talker. He could talk himself into or out of anything, as, as the book says. So he talked himself into this job. But the, the gaffer, who is uh, what we would call a tender here in the States, which is like your, uh, your assistant. He gets you suited up, handles your umbilicals. You know, Sometimes you got a guy on uh, the umbilical line and on comms. But the gaffer, he, he picked it up pretty quickly that, Brian had never, had Brian, no the main character, had never, never dived <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. at all in his life. So he, he helps him out in that first dive, and he dives in a little tributary of the Thames River. You know, So it's just mud water. It's just the black River mud water. In about uh, 10 meters of water, bringing up these coils of copper wiring that had fallen over, uh, you know, fallen off the, the boat at the dock. Anyway, that was his first job. He almost died <laughs> a couple times doing it, but he, he made it through, and and he liked it. Above all, he liked the pay, and they asked him to come back, even though they figured out he had never dived ever before in his life. They asked him to come back, and that's how he got started. Yeah, they basically uh, respected that he had balls. I think that's... Uh, I think that's like getting the job done. And this was what was emphasized when I was in, in commercial school, getting the job done at nearly all costs. And like the only reason you don't die doing is doing it is because of a, the paperwork, the money they'd lose, unless it's the last job of the day of, of this, you know, of the whole mission. If it's the last job, you can die. It's all right. Just get it done. But, you dived no matter what. You had a head cold. They don't want to hear it. They do not want to hear you got a head cold. You can't. Put, you can't equalize. Things like that. You still went and dived. Were so, you allowed to take Sudafed? Yes, it was encouraged. It wasn't even allowed. It was encouraged. I'm surprised it wasn't included. But I, uh, I got an interesting story about that because I didn't take Sudafed. I didn't take any pills. I would take a little squirt of uh, Afrin. Okay, right. Yeah, Which, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't want to say I'm out here recommending divers do this, but so I was working at about I don't know, I was only thirty feet of water or something. But you're down for hours at a time. So I I uh have a you know, I, I get down doing the job. After a couple hours I can feel, you know, I'm going up and down just to, you know, I don't know, five feet in the water column working on a pipeline kind of project. And uh 
I can, f- I can feel my head is just killing me for my sinuses. So I go to the top side and the comms. I said, hey, go in my locker, grab my Afrin, and bring it over to the side. I'm going to pop up, lift my helmet off, and give me a squirt. So I go up, and my sinuses swelled so bad, I couldn't. my eyes like almost swelled completely shut from my face swelling. But then they, they pop my helmet off, and they give me a squirt in each nostril, and my, my whole head like opened. It was like, exactly, you could hear all the noises. It's crazy. Yeah, all part oh. of the fun. I mean, you've had, you've had those coming up where it just blows your head out, that, that pressure. But in, you know, after a long dive. Long time ago, teaching a weekend of open water classes. And at the end of, you know, it's springtime, you know, so all the, the, the pollen's in the air and, you know, my sinuses, my allergies were going crazy. <clears throat> Diving all day Saturday. Sunday, you know, you, you get up Sunday, Sunday morning, you got to do <laughs> controlled emergency swimming ascents Sense, all morning, yeah. so Sunday. And yeah, up and down in 20 up feet and of down, water. Up and down, yeah. up and down, up and down, exactly. And then, So then at the end of the day, Sunday, I got to go pick up my, my float, <laughs> you know, which is back down in like 30 feet of water yeah. tied off on one of the platforms. Dude, I was like four feet away from the... <laughs> couldn't get... <laughs> I was, it took me like 15 minutes. Like, I just couldn't yeah. get, like, the sinus in the front of my... Uh, in the front of the right side of my cheek. I just, I couldn't get it to to equalize. I was Ouch. up and down a little bit, a little bit down, a little bit up, a little bit, trying to get that last couple of feet so I could get my hands on that spool. A pain in the ass. But, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, little... Th- those are just little things that in that commercial diving world, you, you have to deal with you can't say oh i can't um can't get down there i got a stuffy head today they'll say okay well why don't you take the rest of your life off of this job we'll talk to you later but on the plus and this is a, another part of this book and i think commercial divers would agree i mean the money the money that a commercial diving paid especially back in that day was pretty darn good Especially yeah, a, sat allowed, diver. Uh, a sat diver is insane because you're not only getting a base pay, you get a depth pay for how deep you are. And, you know, the thing about sat diving is you do a job and then you, you, you're off. So, like, one job would, could be a whole year's salary. One job for a couple months is a whole year's salary. And then it's... Whiskey, women, and Maseratis, <laughs> well, as we see from uh, good old Brian here in this book, which is, oh, yeah. which is where a lot of the fun, exciting tales are, right? Well, the Maserati, so he, got, he buys a Maserati. So he's over in Europe, right, in, in the 70s, and he buys a Maserati, which should give you an idea of how much money the guy's making, you know, especially back then. Not, Maseratis weren't like, you know, now you, can, you, you see people you know, who got loans <laughs> and, and they, you know, they live in a mobile home kind of thing, but they're driving. Yes. They have a, they uh, have a piece of paper that they, they have a piece of paper <laughs> that they make payments to yeah. that allows them to drive a Maserati, which is different from reaching into your pocket and uh, handing over cash to buy a Maserati. That's yours. Oh yeah. And, and the thing about the Maserati is the whole aura about it. That's why, you know, reading the book when he says he's getting a Maserati, it was that kind of drew me a little bit further into the into the story 
was, okay, the guy's getting a Maserati. He's a, a commercial diver, sat diver. He's driving a Maserati over in all these different places he was at, you know, over in Europe. And uh, But this one quote, this one one line was pretty funny, and I don't know if you remember this one. It was, he's talking to his, he's uh, meeting the one of the project managers down in Brazil, and they're meeting at a bar to talk about a job that they want him to work on, a set you know, a sat job, saturation diving job. So they're they're having a couple cocktails and they're talking and this guy named the Colonel is kinda talking to him about the job and, you know, where he's staying. He's just making small talk. And he's a you know, the Colonel says, What kind of car you drive, bud? And he says, A Maserati. And the Colonel says, Damn, Italian iron. Which one, bud? He says, Merrick. I've, been, I've spent the same amount as the asking price fixing the bastard, though. <laughs> right, beautiful, yeah, right. though. The, the colonel then says, beautiful, though, bud. Eh? There is no begging for shagging when your Maserati is your wagon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that line specifically, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. And that he, was, he, uh, that was great. He says, no. He replies, no comment. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, no bagging Yo, for shagging when a Maserati's. Do you did you say that about your um your little Ford Ranger pickup back in the day? There is no bagging for shagging when a Ford Ranger is your wagon. <laughs> That's uh, I said that for about fifteen years. I said that line to myself. You know, my first car was a, a Gremlin that I bought off my next door neighbor who had it in his garage. Bought it for seventy five bucks. Now there's a lot of begging for shagging when a gremlin's your wagon. If you, is, I think, if is, uh, you can get the way lucky, the saying goes. If you can get lucky in a gremlin, <laughs> you got something going on. If you can get lucky in a gremlin, you can get lucky in anything. Yes, I, uh, I had I my how... my gremlin tricked out though. I didn't I didn't tell you about my grem. I, we called it the grem bird because my buddy who had a firebird, he had an extra firebird decal came with it. So I bought it off of them, and I put it on the hood of my gremlin. <laughs> did, you, did you have, uh, have T-tops? You had the only gremlin with T-tops? It didn't have a T-top, but I had, it was jacked up with white letter wheels. The normal dive supervisor, Dominic says, had been struck down by dysentery, necessitating a promotion within the ranks, and Brian had got the job. From beneath the ragged blue tarpaulin, hastily erected by lashing random poles at each corner to guard the communication equipment in the raging monsoon downpours, Brian found a wooden box to sit on and took a step up the ladder. Shaving his new mustache was troublesome in such primitive conditions, so he had allowed a full beard to grow. Along with swimming shorts, sandals, and a white headset, He wore a tan leather jacket over his shoulders to protect against the balmy driving rains. Over the course of a working day, many topics were discussed during the diving that was continuing beneath the deck. At one point, the sex lives of the crew while offshore, a grandiose term for the extracurricular acts offered by the short Asian man who washed their underpants, was up for debate. (laughs) So yeah, so in that documentary, Last Breath, so this guy, like he, so he gets ripped apart from his umbilical, and it's a pretty cool scene where he's basically on the bottom of the ocean in absolute pitch black, and he knows that he just he has to get back to the rig, but he's got no idea what direction it's in, and he just goes 
walking and by miracle he hits this damn thing <laughs> just exciting scene you know so that part obviously they recreate but it's really really good so he basically gets back on this um structure climbs to the top of it waiting and hoping they're gonna come find his ass yeah interesting so you know in in salvamar there's a couple of near misses that uh that the story goes through won't tell you how the story ends don't want to we don't want to ruin the book right um, no, we don't want to ruin can, the book. We, we can talk a little bit about... I don't want to ruin the movie either. Yeah, I don't want to ruin the movie or <laughs> the, the book. book or the movie. Who's going to play... Burt Reynolds is dead. I know they say throughout the book, Brian looked a lot like like you would mistake him for Burt Reynolds. And there's pictures of him in the book, too. Yeah, yeah. So he is, he's very Burt Reynolds looking. Although, I think there was... I don't know. You know at, a the, good... at the very back of the book, you know, there's a picture of him like standing in that, in that cage... He looks a lot like you in that photo of you, well, you yeah, know, yeah. on the old commercial the diving dock. We uh, we all look the same. Uh, I was going to say, probably a good fifteen to twenty percent of the male population in the seventies looked like that. Yeah, you know yeah, that f- <laughs> the the flowing the flowing hair, the Starsky and Hutch look exactly. Bell bottoms. Bell, tight bell bottoms, shirt open <laughs> down to your navel. hairy chest, gold chain, gold chains, baby, gold chains. Yeah, the the bigger the better. But, but yeah, so he was in his <clears throat> he was in his like uh, mid thirties when he got going, right? And then like I think so he, by the middle of the book, he's in his early to mid forties, and he's, he's still and he's like really in his heyday. Actually, of, he's in he's forty nine. In the in the middle, where he takes basically his last job, he's going to Brazil talking to the colonel, and that's about the middle of the book. That's that's where I was reading from. It's a little bit past middle, but it's he's forty nine years old, and I was going to tell you that you know they talk about this is another part, James, of the dive industry then versus now, and and not just the dive industry, but you could get away with lying about your age. And this is what the, what the colonel, you know, the colonel was talking to him about the Maserati. You know, there ain't no begging for shagging when the Maserati's your wagon thing. Well, the colonel also says to him, you know, they're talking, they're talking about, you know, who they are and whatnot. And he, they know that he's forty nine years old, and they said, and he's like, well, you're way, you're way past a diver's age, you know. And we've talked about this because even in, in commercial dive school, they said, listen. You got to your forties, maybe, and that's it. There ain't there ain't no like fifty year old divers out there. But down in Brazil, where he was going for his next sat job, they said, "Well, how old do you want to be? We'll make you." A, he says, "How's thirty five? He goes, "Considered done. You're thirty five. So he went on his last job as a forty nine year old. But um, this way, this little this little scene I kind of liked because it you know it's a little bit like getting trapped down there. At a hundred meters, and losing losing your topside support really, but this is uh, it's talking about being you know going down in the bell. So he says the bell was fixed to the top of the pressurized living chambers. Those are called the deck decompression chambers, FYI DDCs, and uh, that's where the saturation divers live in between working, and it's up on the deck, so you're not having to stay down in the water. So this bell that transfers the diver to the work site and back up to the deck decompression chamber is on a on a winch. It's on a crane with a cable. 
So the bell was fixed to the top of the pressurized living chambers, a circular upward trunking which finished flush with the rear, rear deck, and Brian and Malcolm climbed up to take their positions after the previous shift had withdrawn to their own separate chamber. The daylight pouring through the tiny porthole was the sole natural light they saw during their weeks of confinement. Once in the water and descending to the worksite, the porthole shifted through ever-darkening shades of sapphire. But they didn't reach the water on that occasion as the dive was aborted before the bell even got wet. A few irregular crunches transmitted through the lift cable as the crane began to lift the bell clear of the living chamber. The O-rings securing the seal were removed by diving technicians on the deck of the Star Hercules. As the bell swung a meter above the circular seal, the lift wire snapped, dropping the pressurized bell back onto the main chamber. So what you got there is where that, that bell mates with the deck decompression chamber. There's a seal. So when, when they lift up that bell that transports them down to the bottom of the seabed, and back up to the deck onto the uh, top of the deck decompression chamber. It has to mate and seal airtight with that deck decompression chamber. So they pressurize it and open the open the hatch on the inside, right? So yeah, right, what yeah. happened is the guys are they're changing shift. So they go up into the the old old crew comes out of the bell. The new crew goes up into the bell. They shut the hatch. Tell the crane operator, tell the, you know, the dive supervisor, hey, we're ready to go. They start to lift the bell off of the deck decompression chamber, and the cable snaps. Again, not uncommon. I don't know if you ever worked with cranes ever. I used to do some construction work after my first tour in the service, doing a lot of work with cranes. And you th- big cranes, like giganto cranes. Yeah, like big like uh, construction yes. cranes that you'd see on a building. Right, building. so yeah. like they would put us in... Uh, uh, what is the thing called? It's a stage, really. So the stage is where you step onto it. It's hooked onto the cable, and you hold on, and they lift you up, and they lower. So we had to. We were working in a uh, giant tank. It's like forty feet tall, thirty feet tall. So we, they would lift us up and then lower us into this tank, and uh, that cable would would snap. Fortunately, not with people on it, but it, those cables on these cranes would snap all the time. Anyway, so the, the, the cable snaps, and they slam back down on the seal. They have to abort the dive and fix the cable. So uh, that's what happens right here. Matt, it says, as the bell swung. Give me the aqua, <laughs> seal. Give me the aqua seal, boys. <laughs> we needed a couple new O-rings, yeah. Uh, as the bell swung a meter above the circular seal, the lift wire snapped, dropping the pressurized bell back onto the main chamber. Mass panic broke out among the technicians as they inspected for damage and, crucially, leaks. So they got to make sure that that bell will seal again. Otherwise, they're trapped in that bell until they can get the seal fixed. They can't, they can't mate it up to uh, the deck decompression chamber for their decompression. It's a- right, right. <laughs> and they're at, and they're, and this, in this scene, like they're in... They're pressurized at 240 exactly, meters. Exactly, exactly. So it isn't like, you know, if, if that seal broke, it would have been so ugly inside of that bell. Just a bloody oh, yeah, mess. It would have been like uh, doing an emergency ascent from 240 yes. meters up to the surface. And like what now. could you do? You just sit there and watch that. Just I just want you to imagine that. You'd have to sit and watch that. 
But inside the bell, a very shaken pair of caged canaries, Brian and Malcolm, gave each other an inquisitive stare as they assessed their situation. The bell appeared appeared to have survived the impact. There was no loud hissing around the bell door, which would indicate a damaged seal and loss of pressure. Even a partial leak could induce a life-threatening bend as the pressure would reduce in excess of that recommended in dive compression tables. So knowing that these guys are saturated, their ascent was going to be in the weeks to a month kind of time frame. It wasn't going, it's not like a few hours. It's not even a few days. It's weeks to months. So uh, any leak would have been deadly. Yeah, so just <clears throat> crazy, man. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the, you have to mentally. Like, that's the part you don't right. notice when uh, when you, you consider these guys that are doing the, the saturation work. It seems so simple. And that's one thing they go through in that last dive or that last breath movie is, like, living in these conditions. It's It's like being an astronaut in many ways because, I mean, you're, even though the dive job's done, You've got days, weeks before you're actually able to climb out. And then you cross your fingers. Of, of, then you cross your fingers and <laughs> yeah, nothing right. is wrong. I guess, the, you know, this little scene right here illustrates that it's not, the danger isn't just down at the bottom of the, the ocean, okay? This is on the deck of the dive vessel. And it could even have been an oil rig. I, I can't recall. I think, that oh, this was the Star Hercules. So it's a dive vessel. So this, like I say, this illustrates that this type of diving isn't just dangerous in the diving and the actual work of diving. It's dangerous for the entire operation from, from, from the get-go. And you have to rely on, on the uh, personnel that you're working with. So that's where it also became crucial. You know, like you earn a reputation in the diving community, in that, in that commercial diving community, where either you're an unsafe asshole who only cares about getting the job done, no matter what the cost in lives or, or, or safety. Or, you know, there's a de delicate balance. You can be over safe where the job can't get done because it's ridiculous, you know, the safety level. Right. And then uh, and on top of that, you've got the when you're not diving, you're living <laughs> in a room the size of a of a of a small bathroom with. With a couple other guys for weeks. Yeah, yeah. and it, I mean... So you've got that part of it, like, uh, like, are you, you know, such a weirdo that's going to drive everyone in, insane, right. you know, and so there's a, somebody goes absolutely berserk just dealing with you for weeks? <laughs> so anyway, the, the scene picks up again, so they've, they, they checked for leaks, right? Fortunately, it looks like there's no leaks. The seals weren't damaged. Now they have to repair the uh, the cable on the crane and and get them to the dive site. So, so they pick up there. It says, however, they weren't to know if the seal on the top of the chamber had been damaged, and were unaware if divers if the divers in the other interconnecting chambers had been affected by a rapid decompression. Although if this had happened, they wouldn't have known much about their passing. They would have simply, they would simply have exploded. In a split second, each molecule of gas in their bodies would have ex would expand relative to the amount of atmospheres they were stored at. So what is that? Where did we say they were at, James? Two hundred and forty meters. Uh two hundred and yeah, there was two hundred and forty meters. So like twenty five atmospheres, twenty four to twenty five times. 
the gas would expand in size. So just think about that. Um, whether sleeping or entering and exiting the bell, their lungs would be the first thing to explode. If you were unfortunate enough to be in the vicinity of the leak after exploding, it was likely your mortal remains would be squeezed to the gap and scattered beyond the chamber. Such were the forces at work. The only saving grace in this situation was that the passing would be immediate, at least, especially if you were asleep. So, yeah, there's a little picture uh, painted for you. The other thing about this kind of diving, living in a deck decompression chamber, is going to the bathroom, eliminating wastes. So there are many, or at least there were many, stories circulating in the commercial dive community about uh, divers sitting on the pot and they opened the, um, the transfer capsule on them and it sucked their guts out through the rear end. Just, and it sucks them down onto the pot. They can't get, you know, just sucks their insides out from a rapid decompression. Well, yeah, because, I mean, the, the amount of pressure <laughs> yes. that you're talking about is just ridiculous. There was an mm-hmm. incident here back in the, was that the late 90s where there was a, commercial guy that was doing a job yeah, over yeah, in here, Hines. right near so uh, by the Lake Point Yacht Club. Yeah, yeah, like I'll never I'll never forget that. Like Well, uh, he wasn't a commercial first of all, he was a commercial diver. He was an untrained commercial diver. He was just a scuba. Right, going down yeah. to yeah, going down to clean off a damn uh valve. Right. Gate. And the valve got turned back on while he was underwater. He got yeah. sucked through a so tiny he, hole. His whole body. Just think of it. Think of the pressure behind that. He was only uh, James. Do you remember? I mean, I I drive by that that little dam all the time. And it, yeah, it's right over yeah, by your it's, house. Yeah, it's not. It's not that deep, right? No, he's. It's not yeah. even ten feet deep. Yeah, I, I don't think. think. Yeah. In, I thought it was in around that area, but yeah, just that. But when you take uh, when you take the water of a whole entire lake, small small little lake, pond slash lake, and you're gonna you're gonna push it all through a hole anything near that hole is going in that hole right now yeah it's going through right and if now. it's at least somewhat malleable like a human body it's going to crush anything solid in it and, and and yeah it's just ugly just the thought of it when i heard about it i mean i just shook my head typically in a procedure like that you know there are there's a number of osha guidelines to follow that if you go to a commercial diving school you'll learn about because there's a that's a huge portion of it but going down where there's a gate or valves that can be opened from the top side they need to be locked out and you go down with the key they can't open them without you there so you're saying that just because i've went down and got paid 200 bucks to <laughs> cut some pilings i can't call commercial. myself a commercial well, you diver? can technically but but reality of it is you're just a you're a scuba diver that's i bought a kirby morgan <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, the other side of that, James, is like what Brian Brian did here. He entered the commercial diving field as a career without ever even having an open water card, and and he learned on the job. So you can do that, and they did do that. Yeah, you can you can learn on the job, but you still got to learn. You still got to learn somehow, and you got to learn so there's things you without need, yeah. it costing you, you know, a, a your life, your health, your <laughs> a limb, whatever, 
Um, yeah, and it's interesting. So in that movie, The Last yeah. Breath, they talk a lot about as well the that relationship between the guy sitting up there on the monitors, right? Who's basically he's basically God to the people that are to the divers. Mm-hmm. That are pressurized, right? Because he's got to get them back home. He's the one that's sending them the gases to breathe. He's the one that's making sure the pressure is released. So they're really leaving their life in his well, hands. Well, a whole number of people's hands. So the, the dive supervisor will Correct. control all that. The dive supervisor. But there's a number of people. Like a commercial a commercial diving job to this magnitude is is tens of people at least. Well, yeah, you've got depending not on. to mention the, the the people that are piloting the ship. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, all of that, right? And the guy uh, who, the guy who, not to mention nowadays, like everything's you've got so much trust in the computers, and that's like where like all the, the computer well, goes yeah. out in this in this movie. The backup computer goes out. The backup to the backup, <laughs> like everything goes. They're all freaking out until like, and, and it's classic because it's. Did we try turning it off and turning it back on again? It's <laughs> exactly. basically how they get the ship restarted. Yeah. Like, uh, control that, that alt delete. Control three finger salute. Control alt delete quickly, people. We got to get these guys back on top side. Uh, but when you think about, I mean, it's not just those immediate people. Okay, I want you to think for these operations, they have tea bottles, not a few hundred. Thousands to tens of thousands of tea bottles of helium, oxygen, whatever inert gas. They might even, you know, if they're doing hydrox, hydroxy helium kind of thing or a hydroxy helium mix or hydroxy mix. The just the the guy back at the gas, the filling station at the gas place, making sure that they were filled in the right tanks, the right order got to the to the dive operation. And that the guy hooking up the uh, surface-supplied gas is hooking up to the right bank of gases. I mean, just think of all of the little links in the chain that can fail because some guy was either a little hungover or was mad, wasn't paying attention, broke up with his girlfriend, head not in the right space. Yeah, all all those things that just can't cannot enter the picture it's crazy so you got to put your trust into all of that so yeah back to this uh so within the bell the impact was so forceful it was hard to envisage the chamber hadn't sustained some damage but the fevered yelling from the technicians circling the bell soon begun to subside brian and malcolm took this as the emergency was over and all had survived somehow if only through good fortune Okay, dive aborted, Richard advised his divers in the bell, confirming the obvious. What the fuck happened there, Brian asked. Lift wire broke, chaps. No harm done. You know, we should be doing this entire reading with a British accent because they are British. All right. No, no, I can't do do it that long. I'm not that practiced. (laughs) We, We are just getting the spare attached now. Fuck's sake, Richard. Sorry, guys. Is the seal damaged? We don't think so. Better it happens up here on deck than down there, hey guys? It was a somewhat misplaced and flippant remark to two divers who would rather it hadn't happened at all. Easy for you to say. You should try it in here. So so what just happened? Again, cable snaps. They're in the little bell. Slams down onto the seal. They get rocked all over the place. And they don't know what's going on. 
and can't and do anything you just about sit it. There and wait for somebody to help you. Yeah. Either either wait for it all to be better mm-hmm. or wait to get squirted through <laughs> your whole body right. through that through that crack in the in the wall. So we don't want to try to lift you guys using the bells umbilical. So just hang tight there. Won't be long. Richard's speech was staggered as he received whispered reports from staff members in the control room. Both divers shook their heads in inaudible unison. Brian, with his jaw pronounced with annoyance. The most conscientious diver or divers could be undone by a poor crew, or as Brian had observed of other unprofessional crews from his past. If they haven't killed you yet, they fucking will do. The ungalvanized spare cable was only a spare, as the same failure had happened two months earlier. A repair of sorts had been carried out before it was coiled on the open rear deck of the Star Hercules. Sixty days of water spray had worked on the individual strands, the salt accelerating the corrosive processes, affecting the strength and flexibility. It passed a hasty visual inspection before re-entering the service to successfully position the bell to allow a transfer next day. The spare cable gave no indication of impending failure when first taking the load of the bell. From inside the bell the following morning, it felt sound as Brian and Malcolm were once again lifted clear of the chamber and deposited through the surf. So it took them a whole day, get a new, get a new cable on the crane, and hook them back up and send them down. Meanwhile, they're just sitting there. Good for them in the sense that they get another day's pay, but bad. And uh, I just want you to have, you know, how, do you, how confident are you feeling in uh, actually making it to the dive site? alive now <laughs> <laughs> right yeah yeah so i won't go too much i mean we're we're, we're reading a lot the, the next scene is lowering it down and not to spoil it but the cable that they use that they were a little leery of because it'd been sitting there for 60 days in the wind and surf and the salt water well it's only holding on by the time it gets down to the seabed it's only holding on by one strand of this multi-stranded cable. So Brian sees this and says, okay, this ain't going to pull us up. So they have to unhook down at the bottom of the sea at 240 meters. And basically, they're just laying on the bottom of the seabed with, yeah, yeah. with no ability to get up. <laughs> and they got to wait while they Wicked. get a new, new cable. <clears throat> so it's a great little book. It's available on... Amazon, I know for sure you can find it, but if you uh, look up Salvamar, S-A-L-V-A-M-A-R, Salvamar, The Tale of Salvage and Deep Diving by a Dominic Miller. It's a really cool story about his uncle Brian. It, it takes place between 1970 and 1970 or 70 and 84, basically, like it's like 14 year run of this guy's life and adventures and exploits uh, above and below the surface. A must-have for the library of any accomplished scuba diving enthusiast. Diving enthusiast, yeah, for sure. Uh, thanks thanks to Dominic for sending that to us. And, you know, any of our other listeners that send us books to, to read, we appreciate that. And although Dominic sent this a while yes. ago... We will eventually get to it if you do send us a book. Don't uh, don't expect us to do it. You know that next week that uh, that might be difficult. Yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes sorry. But we will we will eventually get yeah. to them, and we do appreciate everybody who's 
sent us anything. Sometimes our schedules don't go as planned, uh, especially when it comes to episodes. Uh, well, should we uh, should we sign these? Yeah, I think books? we need to wrap this one up. Um, all right, there, mate. Hey, this uh, this episode was magic. It was magic. Oh, you took mine. <laughs> I was gonna. That's what I was gonna do. I was gonna. <laughs> <laughs> that was magic. That was that's in that's Brian's kind of little catchphrase. Yeah, got it. Well, it was magic. It was magic, and and there's no bagging for shagging. And when your when your Ford Escape is your your wagon. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, let's uh, let's go take a little uh, ride in the Grimper. You should pick me up. Pick me up later. Let's uh, go cruising. You chicks. you would have liked Grimper. Grimper held a lot of stories. All right, everybody, uh, go check out uh, Dominic's book. And uh, thank you guys for tuning in. And we will see you next week. her stick shift in it in leather buckets that that swiveled it wasn't all together a horrible grim gremlin and it, but it had little, a straight uh, six did you have the little dingleberries hanging around the, the no top no the, no, the no it wasn't interior? anything that i was this was still pure pure late 70s 80s i tried to make it like one of the muscle cars you know so i, I had a i had the white letter tires i had the Firebird on the front, and then I had uh, it was jacked up a little in the back end, and I had a hush thrush muffler on it and her stick shift, and then I had the uh, the leather with the chrome uh, steering wheel in it. Anyway, it sounded mean. My dad thought I was a jackass. Of course. Every time I, he like when we me and my buddies were putting putting the Grembird putting the bird the Firebird on the Gremlin to make it become the Grembird. He walked past us and he just shook his head. You, and he says, "You guys are assholes. That's going to draw every cop in the state to you." <laughs> like, really? Uh, and every chick, Dad. <laughs> yeah, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't get that part. <laughs>